Amen. So this sermon is very much an introduction, an introduction to a new series that's going to be based around just five chapters in John's Gospel. And in the first part uh, today, we're going to start off with more of an overview of John's intentions as the author, and then go on to focus on the passage that Ivor has just read to us. And as we go through, we're going to consider three key areas that might help us understand how we grow in our relationship with Jesus and how we develop our character as Christians, or maybe help us understand perhaps why we're not growing. So three little words, intimacy, identity, and humility. But let's start at the beginning and think about last words. Last words or last conversations are very important. Whether they're spoken before leaving for the day, embarking on a journey, or leaving this life, words can have a deep and lasting significance. The last words exchanged between people can determine our mood for the day ahead, strengthen or cast doubt on our relationships, can help us when, for whatever reason, we have lost somebody out of our lives. Or words remembered can make that loss more difficult. And it's not just the words themselves, but also the tone, the spirit in which they were said, that can stay with us, sometimes for years, for good or for ill. Words can build up, or tear down. They can affirm or they can destroy. They can bring hope or they can bring despair. They can bless or they can curse. Words can never be taken back, as Peter learned to his cost when he denied Jesus. In the same way, if words that should be said are left unsaid, that's an opportunity that might be lost forever. And that's why we should always keep short accounts, do our best put, to put right misunderstandings, to resolve disputes, to seek forgiveness. In short, we should walk in the light with one another. That's why we need to get into the habit of taking every opportunity to use the gift of words well to affirm one another, to speak well of others, to rekindle the deep friendships that have been difficult to maintain for reasons of time or distance. Because, you know, one day, it will be the words we said and the spirit in which we spoke that others will remember us by. Only yesterday we heard that a very, very dear friend who had recently returned to this country after years serving God abroad and had then been diagnosed with an aggressive cancer. We'd heard that he had now become very ill indeed. And I was just so thankful that we had made an effort to get together over Christmas, that we didn't miss that opportunity. It would have been so easy to, to not do it, but we didn't miss that opportunity to celebrate our friendship together, and most importantly, for us to affirm to him 
our gratitude for the way he had supported us as a family years ago during the most difficult periods of our life. And I know that if he slips into glory before we have the opportunity to meet again, the memory of that time together is such a great comfort knowing that we said and we prayed all that needed to be said. All four of the Gospels show us that Jesus chose his words carefully. His hard sayings were reserved for those who thought rather too well of themselves. To those who were in any way vulnerable or marginalised, he spoke words of comfort, tenderness, hope and transformation. And in this sermon series, over the next few weeks, we are going to dig in to some of the last words that Jesus spoke Words that are actually only recorded in this Gospel of John. Not the famous last words uttered publicly from the cross, but those words spoken at the Last Supper with his disciples in what is known as Jesus' farewell discourse, his final conversation before his arrest and crucifixion. And in contrast to the other Gospels, John's overarching focus is showing us and this is important, who Jesus was and is, rather than what he did and said. John starts by showing us Jesus as the Word, and throughout he emphasises the divinity of Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, eternal, the light of the world. And the Gospel falls into two distinct parts, and we're coming in at chapter 13. Previously, chapters 1 to 12 took place over three years, and they deal with Jesus' public ministry to the multitudes. The water turned to wine, the nobleman's son cured, the sick man healed, the 5,000 fed, Jesus walking on water, blind men's sight restored, Lazarus raised from the dead. All miraculous in the hands of the eternal Son of God. And chapters 11 and 12 depict an escalation, if you like, of intense activity, long journeys on foot, that emotional roller coaster of going to Lazarus too late, finding him dead, and then Jesus bringing him forth again out of the tomb. And then against the background of that, the swelling tide of suspicion that was rising up amongst the religious authorities and Judas's anger unleashed when Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus with oil and wiped them with her hair. And then Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey and that must have given those disciples a real sense of euphoria, I think, leading them to speculation amongst themselves as to what Jesus was going to do now to establish his kingdom on earth. But then, something changed, and Jesus began to speak publicly, predicting his own death. Secrets were being whispered in hidden places. There were some dark days coming, and soon, very soon, Men were going to do their best to ensure the light of the world would be snuffed out. Because Jesus posed a very clear and present danger to all the religious systems and structures of power. And without the life of the Spirit and the blessing of God, activities, structures, religious systems 
do not bring us life, only death. But we move on into chapter 13, and over the next few weeks, we're going to look at events that took place in chapters 13 to 17. The whole of the rest of the gospel takes place only over a matter of days. In chapter 13, we've come in this morning and the focus and the mood change. And we're allowed to look at the ministry of Jesus to those who were the closest to him, his intimate friends who he was going to spend time with before his arrest, his trial and crucifixion. And his words that night that we will unpick over the next few weeks were directed to those to whom, apart from one, of course, he could truly say, I call you my friends. And Judas, as we'll find out next week, left before the conversation had really got going. These friends, these disciples, they must have been a motley crew, a ragbag bunch of different personalities who didn't always see eye to eye with one another. A bit like the church, I guess. But they were those who had left so much to follow him. And they'd stuck with Jesus through all the highs and the lows of those three years. They'd put up with sleeping rough, the crowds clamoring them when they just wanted to be quiet, the vitriolic attacks from scribes and Pharisees. They'd experienced the awe and wonder of being with Jesus, but also the perplexity of it all. And sometimes it must have been just so much to take in. Now, Words needed to be said to them. Words that were going to have eternal significance. Words that must not be lost. This was a conversation that must not be interrupted. It was so important. So important that John devotes these five whole chapters to that one conversation and the prayer that took place around that table in one evening. And this is where that word intimacy comes in. Because only in the quiet intimacy of that upper room behind a closed door was Jesus going to be able to share the things of most importance and signpost his disciples to the way ahead, for the way ahead. This, if you like, was the beginning of the handover, the handover to those who were going to be entrusted with the great commission to take the gospel to the ends of the then known world. And they needed time together without distraction. And now, even together, they were only going to understand his words in part. But later, they were going to think back to this conversation and they would understand it so much more fully. And sometimes, when we get into a quiet place with God, he will speak to us things we don't fully understand. That's why for some of us, it helps to keep a journal or a diary to note what we sense he's saying, even if it isn't all clear, so that later on we can look back and it will all begin to make sense as God fits the puzzle pieces together. Now here's the challenge, and it comes to me as much as to you. If Jesus came by today, this week, and he wanted to have an intimate meal and a deeply personal conversation. Where would he find 
those of us who have that close and intimate relationship with him, who are accustomed to taking time out and closing that door to be with him. Which of us really know the secret of drawing near to God so that he can draw near to us? Who among us really knows how to listen to him and hear him rather than just presenting him with a list of our requests? Which of us know how to continue to trust him in the face of difficulty, tragedy and pain? And how embarrassing, how awkward it would be if some of us, perhaps wardens, preachers, those in the public eye, were not included in this intimate conversation because we have been and are too preoccupied with other things. The Lord has been impressing me for some time now that I have to shed some things if I'm going to continue to grow. This week, in the course of my work, I was down south of England, miles from here, and I had a conversation. It wasn't quite the conversation I was expecting. It was with a vicar of a, a large and thriving church. I'd never got, met him before, but we got on to talking about burnout, and especially burnout amongst clergy. And he was reflecting upon his own church, and he talked about how easily, he said, how easily we could make it into a treadmill. And then I and others, we make choices. We take on more ministries and activities. And we end up actually setting the speed on the treadmill higher. And then we all somehow have to run faster to stay on the treadmill. And some people just fall off. Sound familiar? Haven't we talked in the past about reducing our activities in order to make space and wait for God and listen to him? But to what extent have we really done that as individuals? And I point all my fingers at myself, as individuals or as a church. You know, we were away last weekend and I know you were asked to, to write your comments, your thoughts about the gifts and qualities that you would like to see in a new rector, which is very good question to ask a congregation. But I think there's another question or two that we should ask. Are we ourselves people who know how to stop and listen to God? Are we ourselves people who love his word, who wait before him, so that we may draw upon his wisdom instead of just pushing ahead with our own opinions and our own preferences? Are we people who are willing to change and be changed? Are we willing to reset the treadmill in order to develop our own intimacy with God? Because unless we are those people, any rector, however gifted, will find it very difficult for their ministry to flourish here and they may eventually burn out. And one of the reasons we stay on the treadmill of activity, both individually and corporately, is because our whole identity is bound up with what we do. And sadly, many of us, if we are honest, we need 
status. We need recognition. We need significance. We need some acknowledgement from other people. And many of us find our sense of self-worth in what we do. So we carry on doing it, even when it's time to stop. You know, this time, this very time, 10 years ago, I was questioning whether after 15 years as a head of the same school, it was time to leave and pass on the baton. And I guess in here, I knew it was. But in here, the burning question was, who would I be when I was not the head teacher, when I was not the person at the centre of that community who had their finger on the pulse of everything? But, you know, I found that as I laid that identity aside and stepped out in faith, God was faithful. And in the 10 years since then, he has opened so many new doors and opened so many opportunities that I would never have imagined. And you'll laugh, but I have laughingly asked myself, in a few weeks' time, my six-year term of office as a warden comes to an end. So who will I be if I'm not the church warden? Is that all my identity is? Will you still want to come and talk to me at coffee time when I'm no longer the person to bring your problems, your concerns, your comments to? But I've learned and I'm learning that my identity is not in what I do, not in what I achieve or fail to achieve. My identity lies in the fact that I am a daughter of the King of God, and my calling, and yours, is to love him and grow in Christian character, and then allow him to choose the doors he shuts and the doors he opens. But we need to get back to the upper room. Jesus's farewell conversation with his disciples is every bit as pertinent for us as it was for them. And in the passage that uh, we've just read, I want to continue to draw out these themes. Um, right. There's a powerful lesson that had to be acted out, had to be modelled to them before they could begin to receive what Jesus was going to say. And this was the lesson in humility. Verse 1 tells us, Jesus knew the hour had come for him to leave this world and in front of him was a group of men who he loved deeply but who were not at all ready for what lay ahead. And I guess those disciples would have had some serious illusions about the kingdom Jesus was going to establish and their place in it. Because after all, they were the inner core. They were the A-team. They had seen it all. The miracles, the healings, the raising of Lazarus. And the problem for them, as it so often is for us, sorry, I'm too far, okay, um, was that their whole identity was tied up in being part of that inner core. Hadn't Jesus sent them out two by two? They'd healed the sick. They'd cast out demons. They'd passed around those baskets of food that multiplied and multiplied. And Peter, albeit briefly, had walked on water. Peter, James, and John had been with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. They were the ones Jesus had chosen. Despite the difficulties that they had endured. They must at times have been high on the adrenaline of excitement and expectation. How easily a little power and influence can go to our heads. In that upper room, the bubble 
had to be burst. There was so much they still didn't get. James and John still arguing about who got the best seat in heaven? What's that about? Jesus knew how easy it would be for these men to abuse their power. Because that is what men and women do too often. So Jesus got up and he demonstrated that ultimate act of humility and of servanthood. The direct opposite of what was in their hearts, but a reactment almost to what Mary had done for him a few days before. We sometimes think about foot washing in a slightly sanitised way. Walking in sandals on the filthy, dung-spattered roads of Israel made it essential that feet were washed before a communal meal, especially because people reclined at a low table and feet were visible, not neatly tucked away underneath. So a host would always delegate this menial and, frankly, degrading job, not even to a Jewish slave, but to a Gentile. At this supper, Jesus was the host. And when he got himself up from the table and he began to wash the feet of the disciples, he was doing the work of the lowliest of servants. How incredulous they must have been to see such a supreme act of humility. Christ, their Lord and Master, getting up, taking off his outer clothes, filling a bowl with water and washing their feet drying them with the towel he'd wrapped round himself. All the wrong way round. It should have been them washing his. And John tells us that in doing this, Jesus showed them the full extent of his love. A few days before that, they might have been convinced that Jesus was about to reveal himself as king and conqueror, the one who would rout the Roman armies of occupation. But Jesus was revealing himself instead as the one who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And in that simple act of foot washing, he made very, very clear that the ways of humanity are not the ways of God. He told them as he tells us, I have given an example that you should do as I have done for you. And as his followers, we are called to follow his example in all things, serving one another in lowliness of heart and mind, seeking to build one another up in humility and love. Sadly, our attitudes and behaviours are more often shaped by the influences of the society in which we live a place where the opposite values prevail. Humility is not a word we use too much, perhaps because there's not too much of it about. And tragically, when we look at our national and world leaders, we don't see much evidence. And the internet and our 24-hour news feeds give us a permanently open window on the world, and everywhere we look, we see abuse of power in governments, in organisations throughout the globe, and in personal and family relationships too. All over the world, people abuse their power simply because they can. 
And even more tragically, in churches of every denomination, people can abuse their power and influence if they're not walking humbly and intimately with Jesus, their identity bound up in him. There's a, you may have noticed from media posts, there's a big conversation going on at the moment about abuse in faith settings. And often the focus has been in that conversation about leaders who exert influence and control. But actually what researchers are finding is that out there also, there are many good Christian men and women leaders who have suffered greatly as a result of the abusive behavior of some people in their churches. Wow. These things shouldn't be, should they, in the church of Jesus Christ? Whoever we are, when we seek the preeminence, when we seek to exert undue influence that is not born from godly wisdom, we displease the Lord who promised that true greatness in his kingdom is attained only by those with a servant heart. Jesus says at the end of the passage, do you understand what I have done for you? I have read it to us. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, now that I've shown you, now that I've explained it to you, now that you've got it, you will be blessed if, if you do them. Before we finish, we also just need to take a look at verses 8 to 10. Peter was horrified at the thought of Christ, his master, kneeling before him and washing his stinking, filthy feet. But note what Jesus says in response, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. This profound and prophetic statement wasn't just about Peter's feet. As the penny began to drop, Peter then just says, no, not just my feet, wash the whole of me. And then Jesus goes on to say, you've been washed. You know, we all encounter Jesus and we all come to faith in different ways. For some of it's a very emotional response driven from the heart. For others, it's much more cerebral, a reasoned approach to the kingdom. For some, it's a dramatic one-off encounter. For others, it's a much more gradual experience. It doesn't really matter. But however we come, there's one thing that's inescapable. We come with sin, an old-fashioned word. We come with sin, we come with our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. We come to Jesus soiled. It's not a question of agreeing that after all there's something in this gospel, and yes, we, we, we will become part of this church and we will, we will follow a Christian way. We have to come to that place where we recognise that we come soiled, soiled by the things we have done, the things we have said. And sometimes we come soiled by the things others have done to us, things that may be hard to forgive. And what Jesus says is, he has to wash us. He has to wash it all away because otherwise, he says, you've no part in me. And, you know, for some of it, you know, if, if, you, if you're troubled and beset with problems of addiction and you're desperate, it's perhaps easier 
to come to Jesus and say, come and take it all away. But if you're respectable and self-sufficient and reasoned and you've more or less got life together, it takes humility, doesn't it, to kneel before God and confess that despite all that we do, all that we've achieved, perhaps even all that we've done in service of the church and in the world, we are soiled. And we need the risen, living Jesus to wash us clean, to wash away everything that separates us from God and enables us to walk so that we can walk with him in intimacy, so that we can come recognising all that we are and knowing that we need a God who saves us from ourselves. And so we walk in humility and recognising that we must find our identity, not in the things that we do, however good they may be, but we find our identity with him and him alone, giving thanks that at that cross, at that cross, he took upon himself the sin of the whole world. But boiling it down, that's yours and it's mine, our pride, our self-sufficiency. He took it all. But there has to be a point, however we come, where we come and kneel at the cross and lay it all before him. So three things we've kind of focused in on this passage. The need for intimacy with God. The need to know that our identity is in him and in the character he's forming within us, not in the things that we do. And deep humility. So... In a moment, we are going to sing a song in response. But before we do, and before I pray, I'd just like us to be really quiet for a few moments. Close your eyes. Don't need to look at anybody. And just, if any of these areas that you've heard of this morning or anything else in the service, if you've sensed that perhaps God is saying something, perhaps God wants to do something for you, somewhere in your life there's a sticking point, Maybe it's about that lack of intimacy with God that you long for. Maybe it's about the fact that you're screwed up about your identity and who you are. And you need to know that you are precious in God's sight and that he loves you and that is sufficient. Maybe it's about discovering more about what it means to walk humbly before God and before one another. I'll just invite you in the quietness. If there's something that you feel God is saying, even if you don't understand it, just put your hand up. Nobody will see, but God will see, and he will take you at your word. Let's be quiet.
Lord, we thank you for all the richness of your word. We thank you that your word is eternal and speaks to us as clearly today as it speaks and spoke to those whom you walked with when you lived upon the earth. We ask you that we will be a people who hear what you want to say to us and act upon it. We thank you that we do not have to strive to please you, but only come simply before you, kneel at the foot of your cross in humility and offer up our lives, all that we are to you. Help us to receive from you continually, or maybe for the first time, that washing that we need that washes away all the things that have soiled us, the things we have done, the things others might have done to us. Wash them away, we pray, that there may be no barriers between us and you, that we may walk in intimacy and communion with you, knowing that our identity is hid with Christ in God. Help us to walk humbly, serving you and one another, according to the example that you set us yourself. Great King of heaven. Amen. So let's